a favour the podcast about learning from experience and the things we do to make our lives easier. My name's Tim Sisney from Make Work Work Better and each episode I'll be talking to my guests about their epiphanies, their inspirations and the magic of their workflow. And I'm joined today by Rich Kershaw. Rich. Hello, really great talking to you for this. Uh, quite exciting. I, I'm early in my podcast guest career um but uh yeah i'm particularly interested in this one um workplace productivity and improving one's work life is a topic very near and dear to my heart excellent well thank thank you for 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 coming on um i'm also new in my podcast hosting career um so you'll just have to sort of roll with that really a little bit we'll work it out so um do you want to give everybody a little bit of an introduction rich what is it you do what are you interested in um what's your thing Sure. So uh, my my thing, um, my thing, broadly speaking, is is tech leadership. Um, so I've spent the last 20 years working as a chief technology officer and general tech dog's body and company founder and maker of things, fixer of knotty technical problems. Um, but actually, um, I, I'm secretly not a, not like a passionate tech enthusiast for the sake of tech. I'm actually more of a sort of process and ideas and creative person masquerading as a tech expert because it's a really useful way to get stuff done um so um all of the jobs that i've held um i've always been doing the tech as a way to get interesting ideas out into the world um and in particular these days uh, for the last couple of years um i've been uh, a freelance tech consultant uh, working as a part-time chief technology officer and advisor to various investment and venture capital companies um and it's an, it's an interesting place for me to be, partly because I get really good work-life balance uh, in a way that I, I really haven't working for startups over the last 20 years or so, um, but also because it's an opportunity to, to get into situations where I, I work on things touching on loads of areas of businesses from you know of the obvious stuff like tech, but also how they deliver their products, how they think about the market and strategy and teamwork and process and getting things out there into the world. Um, so for, for those people I work with long-term, like venture capital companies who need someone on, on their books who can help them with all things tech strategy and help them make good choices, um, I describe myself as a, a, as a tech and process ninja. Um, I've done enough of all of the jobs within tech startups to be able to tell them the things they don't know they don't know uh, and help make that stuff a little bit more obvious to them so they can avoid pitfalls when they invest and help their startup founders get their ideas off the ground without falling down all of those holes that you frequently read about people falling down, you know, fallouts between co-founders and all of the stuff up front that should be avoidable if you bring someone in who knows what they're doing. And hopefully I'm the person who knows what they're doing. I guess one of the things about tech is still that people are people right so it regardless of whether yeah. you've got the um the, the technical background to be able to deliver what you need to do there is still all the relationships and politics and motivation and egos and um uh general pe- weird peopleness um that still needs to be dealt with 
Yeah, absolutely. That's 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 entirely true. And and I think that's probably where most of my value as a consultant lies actually. You know, you can there are loads of people. The world is filled with people who can tell you whether your technology architecture is sensible or not and you know, you can google for 5 minutes and find 50 different ways to build cloud-based software. Um, but actually it's much more of a soft skill, you know, something that you really learn through experience and and it's demonstrable through the projects that you've worked on to be able to go into an organization and say, well, you know, actually, yeah, you, you know, you might have a few technical snags when it comes to your systems architecture, but that's all fixable with, you know, with some, some nows and some skills and, and a bit of experience and some good teamwork. Actually, your real problem is that your CTO is a massive narcissist. So you should probably be thinking about not necessarily even managing them out of your business, but how do you build a workplace culture where that doesn't have too much impact and you can make use of their, you know, their creative and product and technical brilliance, but also have a really good functional team, uh, which isn't, you know, isn't comprised of quiet people orbiting around an entire, uh, orbiting around someone's massive ego. Um, and uh, as you can imagine in the startup world, you see that quite a lot. Um, I like to think I'm quite good at helping companies figure out how to strategize around that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, as you say, it's, you know, weird peopleness of, of an organization is actually, I think, much more interesting to me than, you know, whether or not you chose to use one programming language or another to build your product. Those are sometimes arbitrary choices. You choose one modern thing over another modern thing. Fine. In 10 years time, it probably won't matter. What will matter is how good the leadership was. You know, can you retain people more than six months by having really good work culture? Um, and, you know, how does that work in, in the remote work world as well? People, I think, inherently these days feel a little bit less tied into the community that is their workplace. In the past, especially in startup land, a lot of companies have really taken advantage in, in, a, in a slightly cynical way of people's tendency to sort of buy into the whole oh we're one big startup family we spend our lot you know work is where it's all at that's what gets us fired up in life um and hey if you love your job and you really do feel that passionate about your job that's great but actually i think sometimes um you know slightly slightly cynical founders of businesses are a bit exploitative emotionally exploitative of their employees around that kind of stuff um and especially now that people aren't working face to face quite so frequently, you know, hybrid remote remote work will probably be here to stay in one shape or form. Figuring out for the investors in those businesses whether or not a team and a, and a team's leadership um, is building good, healthy workplace environments that aren't going to feel um, uh, stifling and claustrophobic to their employees in a year or two's time once they've you know once they've got up to speed and they're valuable to your company is really important because you know it makes for happier employees ethically that's a good thing uh, and it makes for longer term employees which is commercially a good thing absolutely and the whole workplace culture maintaining people's well-being maintaining people's motivation um those are really I think gratifyingly quite hot topics at the moment as we return to, to a hybrid workspace because um, we're coming out of this period of kind of, I, I think there's been a big sense of goodwill over the last year where people have made sacrifices in order to be able to continuing to work from home. They've had to juggle homeschooling and work or um, you know not leaving the one room that they have accessible to them for long periods of time in order to, um, uh, in, in order to, to continue to deliver their work and I feel that 
there's going to be an expectation that organisations pay that back a little bit as, as people start to return to a workplace and that the whole flexible working genie is very definitely out of the bottle now. Mm. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I think, um, and it's interesting actually to see, uh, you know, there's a there's a cultural difference and, you, you know, sort of broadly speaking, see, see two camps, you know, there's the, you know, everybody's had a lot of sacrifice we're going to try and do our best to ease that transition and, you know, keep the stuff that's good about this remote working hybrid style whilst giving people an opportunity to reconnect with their teams versus the kind of company where it goes, well, come on guys, you've had an easy ride. You know, you've had your, you've, you've had your two year snow day <laughs> back to school. Um, and those tend to be not, you know, it's not across the board. Sometimes you do find companies where actually that's the prevalent attitude of you know the staff as well. But generally speaking, that's a sign of a company where you're likely to find a bit of a boiling under resentment and everybody on the team is going to be casually keeping an eye on the glass door salary reviews and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, so I think, yeah, there, there's, I think there are going to be a lot of slightly old fashioned companies who've coasted along in a particular industry. You know, maybe it's a slightly incestuous industry where people, people are a bit complacent about their employees retention, where they're going to have a bit of a wake up call when people go back into the office and they realize that actually they do have to start treating their employees a little bit more like responsible adults. Um, and I've always said the same when I've worked, you know, when I've led teams and I've talked to senior leaders about, you know, things like timekeeping in a team, for example, um, you know, I've always said, well, you know, you think you've got a problem that people are arriving at 902. You haven't got a problem if people are arriving at 902. You've got a problem if people are unproductive. If you've got someone who arrives at 10 a.m. every day and they're not missing meetings and they're getting really great work done and they're the most productive member of your team, then let them come in at, at 10 a.m. You know, you, you, you want to get value from your employees. If they're rubbing everybody else's noses in it and going, woohoo, I had an extra hour in bed every morning, booyah, that's a team culture problem and you need to address it. But if actually everybody's cool with it, then maybe you should consider that you know that a, that a flexible team working environment might be something that is actually good for your company and good for your employees' morale. Um, so I think you know I, I try not to make value judgments, and, and actually you know that's that's something I'll probably talk about a little bit more later in later in this podcast because um, it was one of my revelations actually as I grew as a as a leader in sort of technology environments that a lot of the decisions that we make around management are actually basically arbitrary. Well, that's a lovely segue um, into what was going to be my first question. So the folks that go at the conversations on Do Yourself a Favour are about things we've learnt, things that have um, helped us grow, and what are the things that make our lives easier? Um, and the first thing I wanted to ask you is obviously, what's something that you really wish you'd known sooner? What's something where you kind of go, oh, now I understand this. I'm entirely understand how those things that happened to me in the past did not go well or that thing could could have gone a lot better if i'd understood um this particular um truth or um uh, technique or um, approach uh so i thought really hard about my answer to this question and i was tempted to go down the line of you know to, you know stuff about like technology systems architecture and all that but actually i don't i don't think that's really i don't think any of those things are the the most important thing that i wish I, I wish i'd known sooner i think um the thing which would have made the biggest difference to my professional life earlier would have been 
detaching my sense of professional value from a need to be right or to be seen to be right. Um, and also realizing in the workplace that there are going to be other people around you who have um, very complex and often very opaque reasons for reacting in a certain way. And I think those things are really important and, and they go together really, really tightly. Um, you know, when I was in my early 20s and I was just kind of making my way as a, as a young tech leader, um, I, was, I was lucky enough in retrospect at the time, it was very stressful, but I was lucky enough in retrospect to have um, landed as head of digital for a, for a creative marketing agency working for some quite large companies in my early 20s. Um, and at the time, I wouldn't have described myself as being particularly egotistical. Um, you know, I, I didn't have wonderful self-esteem around my work skills. You know, I was in an area that I wasn't entirely familiar with professionally. But I think at the time, my instinct was that it was very important that I demonstrate my worth to the company I was working for by making everybody very, um, making everybody very aware of how, how good I was. Um, and it took me quite a long time to realize that actually, you know, the sales team will be very heavily motivated by uh, their ability to get stuff over the line and then the commission, you know, the client services team will be very heavily motivated by their ability to get everybody else in the organization to run around them, making their jobs easier and getting things over the line because their job performance is based on keeping clients happy. And everybody else's values and, and values and priorities are not necessarily yours. And that's fine. And it's actually quite healthy to come to a point where you can kind of take a step back and detach yourself a little bit from the situation where you've got, you know, a salesperson going, but I promised the client this. And I said that they'd have it next week and you're letting me down. They're not necessarily bad people. They're not necessarily doing it in order to make you feel crap. But, you know, if they are a somewhat more aggressive personality, it's quite normal for someone in a sales team to use that opportunity to make younger, more inexperienced people feel bad and thus go out of their way to fix problems that they've created. Um, and I think it was, it was a massive turning point in my professional life where I sort of detached myself from that a little bit and said, oh, okay, they don't actually, when they go home this evening, they're, they're not going to rage about the fact that the head of IT was, you know, telling them they couldn't have their project delivered until three weeks from now. They're not going to be thinking about it. They're going to be watching a movie and having a glass of wine and probably to talk about the football or, you know, the latest episode of whatever it is they're watching on Netflix. Um, uh, you know, that's, that's huge. I think, you know, detaching yourself emotionally from the stuff that other people try and put on you in the workplace, especially if they're quite aggressive, if they're on, on targets, is really important because now looking back on it, a lot of the stuff that I bring into my consultancy with clients is the reminder that, you know, establishing a base of facts for whatever work it is you're doing and trying to unblock projects and that sort of thing is really important because if you're not dealing with facts, then you're probably dealing heavily with emotions. And if you're dealing with emotions, then it means that the person who is the most emotional is probably going to end up getting all of the prioritization. So, you know, if your engineering team isn't delivering what they should be delivering and they're focusing on, you know, passion projects for your you know, more senior developers, then it might very well be because one of your senior developers is a little bit more loud, a little bit more extrovert, a little bit more uh, comfortable with confrontation than other people on your team. So think about sorting out your internal processes 
so that you remove the passion from it. You know, have people do a little bit of planning and putting together a business scope for things outside of team discussions and then bring it in and talk about it and have some sort of structure. Uh, and if it's a really bad problem, an actual scoring system they have to bring in to justify why they want to move something forward so that you can make that conversation dispassionate. Um, the point at which I realized that I think was the point at which I actually became useful as a consultant, because up until that point, it's just juggling loud people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was it that tipped you off? What was the, what was the turning point? Was there a particular incident? Um, I think it was just a, it was just a weight of, um, a weight, a weight of emotional, demands being placed on me at the time i think it was about halfway through my time at um sort of doing doing a sort of hybrid sort of SaaS consultancy product and i think it just got to a point where i looked at the volume of stuff that we had on our plate and i looked at the way that we were prioritizing it and i think it had maybe been the third or fourth time that day that someone had sort of you know, come into my office, metaphorically arms waving in the air, going, it's a panic. This client has demanded this thing and you and one of your team has just told me they can't do it. Um, and I think that that was kind of the point at which I said, you know, the, said to myself, you know, I can't continue juggling emotional justifications along with fact-based justifications. You know, it helped that I was going through a process at the time of sitting down and trying to figure out cost of delivering some business. Um, and when you're doing that, you know, you've got to sit down and figure out all the measurables, right? You know, how much time is X going to take? How much time does it take to plan a project? How much human resource is required over here? How many bits of software licensing do you need over there? Um, you know, and you're trying to lay out your fact base and turn it into an Excel spreadsheet. I, I then sort of said, well, actually, hang on, maybe, maybe we should have a column for emotional waiting. Maybe we should have something where we factor into this whole delivery prioritization process, how strongly people feel about it. Um, and you know, at that time it was a point in, uh, society, I think where people were starting to get a little bit more comfortable talking openly about, you know, emotional states. Um, and I'd become very aware that actually it was, it was starting to get a little bit more acceptable to be acknowledging the fact that people have emotional responses and that wasn't inherently unprofessional. So I think by, yeah, you know, I think allowing people to be heard, and saying, okay, you know, I can see that you're really passionate about this thing. Let's factor that in, mm -hmm. without chucking that in as the primary factor, um, and giving people a space in which they can feel comfortable, maybe as a more introverted person or a quieter person, making their case for something which doesn't involve how loud they are. And at that point, the process of prioritizing things and getting roadmaps for product delivery sorted out suddenly became a lot easier. And you could actually sit down with a CEO, CEO and say, this is the order that we're doing things in, and this is why. And if they said, yeah, but I've just had so-and-so from the sales team come in and say, this is really important. then you can say, yeah, absolutely. We understand that and they're right. It is important and we factor that in. And here are the other 15 things that are also really important as well. Mm -hmm. And then giving your, you know, giving your colleagues and your, your leadership team the ability to then make some rational decisions off the back of that, which acknowledge the fact that your team have emotions and have stresses and have demanding clients, just clears so many blockers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's that sense that everybody has pressures and those pressures get passed down the line. Um, and each person is going to be dealing with a, a certain, everybody's got their one shouty person who's demanding something and um, 
it's at what point do you break that cycle and turn that into an adult conversation um, that actually is, helps to sort of def, not deflate, but um, certainly diffuse the the decision-making process a little bit. Absolutely. It's interesting what you said earlier about detaching your value from being right, because that's something that, that resonates with, with me quite a lot as well. Um, one of the most interesting and most has, has stayed with me pieces of feedback that I ever got in a, uh, an appraisal was Tim tends to get a little bit shouty when he's not sure why he's right. Ha! That's a great bit of feedback. Yeah, it was, it was extremely perceptive and really made me think. Um, and so my, um, I guess my question would be, how, do, what, how, do you, how was your experience of not always having to have the answers or being able to admit that maybe you changed your mind? How was my experience? Um, I mean, I think that sort of assumes that that assumes that it never happens anymore. <laughs> and uh, I think I think my my part my my partner I think would probably dispute that. The process of going through and sort of dispassionately assessing all the stuff that you have on and sort of breaking it down is you know it's not just for other people. It's also really helpful for me as well. You know, people don't just say to me, "How do we sort out our processes?" They also say, uh, "How how you know what's more important? Tell us what to do." I know that I'm really bad at, um, you know, really bad at kind of reining in my tendency to be a bit of a know-it-all. Um, and this is, you know, anyone who knows my family will probably acknowledge this is a family trait. Uh, in fact, my family, I'm sure, will acknowledge this is a family trait. And it's not so much that I think that you can you can easily get rid of that stuff. It's more that you can kind of acknowledge that it's there and you can manage it. And the way for me that I manage it is by avoiding it sort of getting to the point where it escalates emotionally in the first place. Because I know as soon as I start getting passionate or annoyed or, you know, or sort of engaged in something to that level, then I'm kind of going to be, oh, but I know I'm right and it's important that everybody knows. So sort of taking a step back and making sure that I don't get myself to that situation in the first place is is really important. Um, there are a lot of things I do to make sure that happens. Going into meetings properly prepared, you know, sort of going in half-cocked, not really understanding the landscape and being forced to think on my feet. If I'm put on the spot in that situation and challenged on something, then, you know, improvising the answer is probably going to result in an overconfident reply. And then someone's going to go, are you sure? I have more information than that that demonstrates that you don't know what you're talking about. And, and then I think it's quite natural to feel a little bit backed, in, backed into a corner. So I try not to do that. I try not to get into a situation where I, I will feel silly because I think the point at which people feel silly or a little bit humiliated or, um, you know, or a bit kind of emotional is the situation in which they're most likely um, to kind of kick back a little bit and dig their heels in. You know, it's not a particularly attractive bit of human, human nature, but I've seen it enough times to know that a lot of people do it, myself included, and, and I think it's best avoided. Um, if you can massage it out of your own personality as a trait, then great. But um, uh, hey, there's an entire industry of, uh, of therapists who uh, I imagine do quite well off the back of uh, the immutability of adult personality traits. <laughs> so let's move on to the next question I wanted to ask, which was, was there a book or concept or um, approach that you learnt or exposed to that made a big difference to how you approach your life? Uh, yes, there was. Um, 
so I'm I'm not I'm not a big sort of business book reader by and large. You know, there are a few few books I've read and, and you know I could call out, for example, uh rework by one of the founders of, of Basecamp. Um I mean Basecamp are not in the press for particularly positive reasons right now, as it seems they have a bit of a work culture issue. Um, but you know, nevertheless, they they had some good thinking about about workplace culture, and that certainly shaped me. But actually, I think probably the book that made the biggest difference in my life um, is uh, a fairly well known and extraordinarily silly book, um, The Dice Man by Luke Reinhardt, um, which is a very contrived novel set in the 1960s in New York, written by supposedly um, a, 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 a psychiatrist who realizes that he can, you know, that, that all of his life choices are entirely arbitrary and decides to, as an experiment, make all of his significant life choices, significant and insignificant life choices by rolling a dice and itemizing six things on a scale from entirely rational and entirely mundane through to, you know, indulging his his deepest fantasies and desires um and it's 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 very silly um you know people i think at the time assumed that it was uh you know being the times that they were in the 1960s fairly societally transformative that this was a memoir it wasn't it was a guy who was actually leading a very middle class life who thought it would be a laugh and then kept it going for about 30 years um but i think the thing that i liked about it was that, and I, I must have read this when I was sort of 15, 16, I didn't sort of go off and decide that I was going to become uh, someone living by the way of the dice and rolling a, rolling a dice to make all of my life choices because um, it was clearly ridiculous even at the time. But I think it did just kind of reinforce to me that a lot of the stuff that people do by convention is is arbitrary. You know, there are all sorts of stuff that we do in our daily lives which are the result of, you know, tradition and the fact that the Victorians were prudish and a bit weird and that, you know, that there's a lot of stuff around work culture these days, you know, which is based on, you know, arbitrary decisions that people made in the, uh, you know, in the, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, mostly structured around a manufacturing economy, for example. And... You know, in the time that I've been working, I think one of the things that I took forward from the realization that a lot of it is just kind of, you know, society is just kind of made up. It's just what we all agree to do. Um, so, you know, there's really no good reason to hang on to stuff that's not working. Um, so I definitely wouldn't advocate for companies chucking out their HI policy and giving giving everybody dice and then having a dice session in the morning <laughs> to decide how you're going to operate your company. Um, but one of the exercises I do like to go through sometimes when I'm doing team consultancy is to be really critical and say, well, okay, you know, let's let's be ruthless about this. What's working? What's not? You know, you say that this particular piece of piece of operational whatever is is off limits. Why? What makes it magic? Oh well, this has worked for donkey's years, and you know, we continue doing it because we don't want to upset the team. It's like, well, how do you know the team aren't upset already? Have you actually talked to them about all of the things that you do? Um, you know, and and frequently just by questioning absolutely everything you can pick up that received wisdom and say, well, yeah, sure, okay, so you're doing this thing because it's the way you've done it forever. Does it have to be? If you went and talked to your customers and you asked them what they think about this thing that you think is a fundamental part of your your commercial offering, um, would they agree? And at least 50% of the time, the customers will say anything from, um, sorry, I don't know what you're talking about, to, uh, and I've done this exercise, to, 
um, what? No, we don't care. Through to um, actually, this thing really annoys us, and we we wish you'd change it. We just didn't think it was important enough to mention. So, you know, I think realizing how much our, how much arbitrariness arbitrariness there is in everything we do and in the workplace and you know the fact that we have this shared consensus of of how things should work and it's useful to have that but we can also change it if we want to if there are bits about it not working that was really useful plus also it's an entertaining book and i go back to it every uh, every sort of 10 years or so just because you know it's a laugh and it's ridiculous and it's a nice bit of escapism i have not heard anybody mention dice man for a very long time and this is a very very silly book so hearing about it in this context is, uh, is is fabulous, actually. It's interesting what you've taken from it there, though, because what I took from it was more... Was this idea of, I guess, free of consequence because the decision is being made externally to you. Um, you know, the, the, and although that's... Mm-hmm. Um, he's writing down the six things, so it's not really, you know, entirely... Uh, entirely random what he ends up um, having in front of him, um, but it's, it's this kind of absolution of responsibility that that the dice are making the decision. Um, but I think it's a really interesting lesson to have learned from it that actually many of the patterns that we fall into or have fallen into a society uh, are just they made sense at a particular time for a particular reason, or maybe they were just the easiest thing to agree on at that particular point um, and have somehow just become the way we do things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think your your point there about how, you know, how it's not really arbitrary decisions, you know, because he is, he is still, um, you know, he's still populating the dice with choices. I, you know, I think that that was not lost on me at the point, at that point in time as well. It's like, well, you know, and, and that's, I think, an interesting analogy to bring back into pushback from executives when you do try and change things which are you know apparently arbitrary and they're very attached to it's like well you know we're not we're not arbitrarily changing things to something new we're arbitrary we we are we are deliberately changing things to something that we might think actually might work better might feel like a roll of the dice to you and a big risk but you know it is why you have people with experience on your team just because you don't necessarily feel that then it doesn't, you know, you don't necessarily understand and have the the context for the decision making. That's at the core of um, of delegation, and you know, comes across to another really useful bit of advice someone gave me years ago. You know, hire hire people better than you. Why would you hire someone who's worse than you? You know, the only thing, the only reason I think why people hire people who are worse than them, if they have the option of hiring someone better, is ego. You know, they don't feel comfortable having someone who is more adept at them at a particular thing on the team, and, and that can also be very very damaging. Um, as less dice man either. The the recommendation section um, a little bit now, and so this is the what's a tool you can't live without or that you use every day. Now this could be software, this could be something physical, this could be but something that you use every day and is a go to and you couldn't live without. So, uh, I mean, there are many contenders for this, and I'm going to skip over the really boring stuff, which is rather predictable, like my laptop and my mobile phone, because no one needs to hear that. Um, I would say, um, I mean, this is a, this is a very a very freelancer slash pandemic answer, but uh, genuinely, my my work from home setup. So, um, 
my my partner and I are both we're quite creative people. We like to solve problems, um, and we tend to be fairly iterative with it as well. And we went through five or six different iterations of how we were going to work at home, especially we were in the same room as well. Uh, when we started the pandemic, we've only just moved to a bigger flat. We were in a much smaller space. Um, and so what we eventually ended up with was um, a set of motorized desk legs uh, from a company called FlexiSpot, um, who I can recommend because they work, but um, it was largely a decision made on the basis of the fact that they're affordable. Um, you know, a couple of little buttons that move the desk up and down. Um, a narrow workspace, uh, so um, you can adjust the desk legs so that they're between, I think, um, between 90 centimeters and like two meters. And then I had a custom high quality plywood bench top cut for it as well. So I've got this quite compact 90 centimeter desk with a big monitor arm on it. Um, and then a professional focused mic which again, for working in the same space with another person, super important. You want a mic which doesn't pick up all your room noise. You want a mic which picks up the noise of the thing that it's pointing at and not much else. Um, that's the one I'm, point I'm talking to you on now. Um, and that has, that has and it sounds really simple, but that has hands down made the biggest difference to my work life. The ability to stick the desk on casters and move it over to the other side of the room if I want to do a video call where I'm you know, sort of facing a blank wall or the ability to push the desks up against each other and do podcast recording, um, you know, or the ability to push the button to raise it up above toddler height to make sure that I can get a bit of work done while my three-year-old's running around. That's made such a huge difference to my life. I think I would genuinely be considerably less happy with my work life um, if we hadn't invested in those towards the beginning of the pandemic um, to an extent that I don't think I could say about mobile phone or laptop. You know, I could have a Windows laptop or a desktop computer and any one of a thousand different mobile phones and uh, it really wouldn't make any difference to my life. But, you know, good desk setup, good keyboard, raised, you know, desk I can move around, hands down, best purchase I made. Were you doing the standing desk thing before the pandemic? Is that, or is that a new addition? I was. I've had a standing desk in my working environment since about 2010, Okay. I would say. And before that, I was working on desks with stacks of books and stuff like that to raise my, to raise my monitor up. Um, I know I'm not alone in the tech community in having chronic back problems from years and years of, you know, hunched over, a, hunched over an improperly uh, adjusted desk for years. So the ability to, to stand up and sit down, I mean, you know, there are plenty of evangelists online talking about the benefits of sit-stand workspaces, and you know I don't think I've got anything particularly revolutionary to add to that. Um, but I do agree with it. I, th I think you know having a good a, the good ability to switch between standing and sitting on a regular basis, and a good mat to stand on as well, something you can rubberize that doesn't you know takes the pressure off your feet a little bit, makes a big difference. Um, that's really the only new addition that I've made to my to the style of my working over the last couple of years is the addition of the mat. Um, my last full-time job, everybody in the company had uh, a motorized desk, um, all 600 workstations. Um, it was a huge investment the company made when they first moved into that set of offices. Um, and I mean, the thing, I was quite impressed actually, because a lot of the time you hear people go, ah, well, you know, I've got a standing desk, but I don't really use it much. Most times of the day, you could look out across their open plan office space and you could see at least 50% of the people in, you know, with their, their desk raised. Um, 
people would kind of call someone over and raise their desk up and have a little standing meeting at their desk. Um, and I still find that quite useful. I'm recording this podcast standing up. Um, I think it gives a bit more of an open sound as well. I think if you're sitting down doing podcast or audio recordings, then you're a bit more closed up and it feels a bit more compressed. If you're standing up, you know, thinking back to high school drama classes, you know, <laughs> wide chest, project your voice. I quite like that too. I know that a lot of people I spoke to at the beginning of the pandemic when they were starting to work from home, um, I saw various um, social media posts of people working on uh, ironing boards um, or with, with large stacks of stacks <laughs> books. Um, and interestingly, um, there was an extremely niche thread on Twitter of people using um, boxes of Catan um, as part of their, their laptop riser. Showing off their geek cred, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so with all that in mind, what was the last really useful thing that you bought or acquired? Uh, so this is this is probably... This is fairly geeky. Um, so I, I have two things, because I think they're both great. One of them, and technically this was a Mother's Day present for my partner, um, so I can't necessarily claim all ownership of it, uh, or indeed any, actually, frankly, um, is a home hydro hydroponics um, set up from a company called Click and & Grow. Uh, and it is a little bit frivolous and very millennial, but it's basically a container with a bunch of pods which are pre sort of you know they've got they've got like the fertilizer in um and the seeds you pop them in and then it's got an auto watering mechanism and a grow light at the top and within the space of about three or four weeks you end up with fresh herbs and strawberries and tomatoes and stuff like that and i think that's just great um we live in uh we live in an apartment block so we're in a flat and it's a you know we like the flat good location nice park opposite no opportunities grow things and also we kill plants it's kind of what we do you could even call it a hobby we're so good at it um so having this mechanism that allows us to to kind of have a little bit of greenery and feel like we're doing something vaguely nature related and gardening related is pretty great um the other thing that i'm i'm just just really chuffed about i've experimented with time tracking in so many ways over the course of the last 20 years i used to work for a creative agency where we were billing hourly um, I have uh, run teams where we were doing consultancy and we were supposed to be keeping track of our consulting hours to make sure we weren't over-supplying uh, over, over or over-billing. Um, and now that I'm a freelancer and I actually do, again, regularly charge daily, keeping track of my time is essential, and I hate it. Just that, that sort of very um, sort of factory workforce mentality of kind of clocking in and clocking out and then having to do that dozens of times a day is just painful for someone who is as habitually unstructured as I am. So um, I actually made myself, after having tried all of the options and, you know, commercial time trackers and little polygons that you stick on your desk and you flip over to set the fact that you're working on this client versus another client. So in the end, I, I basically just sat down and did a little product development exercise and said, well, what do I want it to do? I want, I want it to have a list of all the projects I'm working on and a way to change them super duper easily. I want to have a button I can hit to start and stop, and then I want to have a couple of buttons to scroll through all of the projects I've got on, and I can just go click, 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 go. And so I've got this little thing, which is in a 3D printed box on my desk. It's, um, it's got a tiny little display and a Raspberry Pi and three keys, three buttons on it. 
when I get a new project, I go into my Airtable spreadsheet online, um, go to my clients list, um, I add it in the bottom, and it immediately pops up on my little desktop display. And then I can just go down, 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 go. And then when I finish the thing I'm working on, I just hit the stop button and that's it. And when I start and stop, it automatically shoves it back into my list of track time in Airtable. I've got a dashboard that shows me the hours I've worked on every client this week. I can hit a button and it pushes the data over to my accounting software and I can invoice for it. The whole thing probably took me about three days worth of actual man time to get set up. And um, other people I know now want one, so I'm probably going to have to figure out how to put together a little production line over the next couple of months. But I've, I've genuinely never seen a time tracking device for people who are charging daily or hourly. So yeah, that's that's the thing. That's the thing that I'm super chuffed about. I mean, it's extra satisfying because I made it, and there's, <laughs> you know, there's a nice added bit of uh, added bit of rosy glow that comes from having a cool thing that you made rather than a cool thing that you bought. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm really happy with that, and uh, it's the kind of thing where I think anyone who works in a billable hourly daily environment can benefit from it. And there's a potential um, pivoting into a new business opportunity right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I'm actually I'm, I'm doing a, work, a project right now for a company who's doing a hardware software solution, actually running a Kickstarter. So I'm really interested to see how that goes, because if I felt like giving myself more work for free, <laughs> then that could be interesting. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to um, move into the, 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 the final question of the, uh, of the podcast, which is I'd like you to complete the sentence. Do yourself a favor and... Get therapy or at least figure out how to get better self-awareness. So um, I, I'm an advocate for, for therapy in general. I mean, definitely not sort of standing on street corners eva you know, evangelizing or regaling people unprompted at the pub about how everybody should get therapy but if anyone asks i would recommend it i think one of the biggest things that i come across in workplaces is the impact of people who don't realize they have character flaws that impact their ability to get stuff done so i think figuring out how to how to identify your blind spots and then strategies for working around them is really really important for me i think getting comfortable with sitting in a room with a stranger and talking about that stuff was really helpful for other people it may just be you know online forums it may be meditation it may be talking to you know workplace stress management advisor but one way or another, I think sitting sitting down and figuring out what you're good at and what you're not, not just in terms of skills, but also in terms of straight of uh, of traits, is one of the most valuable things that you can do for, you know, your levels of happiness, both personally and also professionally as well. So many people get trapped in bad ways of working and toxic relationships. A very large part because they they don't realize that there is a particular thing that they keep on revisiting again and again and again that's causing them some sort of stress or conflict there are some fantastic workplace companies like um sanctus for example who actually do this 
for employers. So if you're an employer and you want to help your uh, your middle management, your you know your leadership team with this sort of thing, you know, to figure out whether you know is there capacity for your CEO or CTO or you know you if you are one of those people to get a coach because that can be hugely helpful in getting some perspective and your team will probably thank you for it as well yeah it's very rare that having an outside challenge to the way you approach and think about things doesn't help you in coming to a more rounded or self-aware decision or place or way of thinking um it, it literally the call that i was having before we started recording this hopefully a future guest on the podcast and she said you know everybody will benefit from having a coach and i would say you know everyone will benefit from having a coach or, or therapy i 100 percent agree that there's that sense of being able to speak openly about things that you otherwise wouldn't speak openly about um but also be challenged on the way that you perceive those things um, and the way that you make decisions is hugely helpful in being able to grow and learn the person. I agree. I agree. And and I think employers can play a very important role in that as well in destigmatizing. We actually know each other via someone who I met because she was working in that capacity for my employer at the time. And I think one of the most valuable things that employers can do is to actually engage with coaches and therapists and stress management consultants and actually send the message to their workforce that this stuff is important and this stuff is acceptable and it's actively encouraged by the employer to acknowledge that stress is a thing that needs managing and that self-awareness is a thing that's really useful to your employer as well as to you Mm -hmm. and i think that in itself removing any implication that it's a sign of weakness to acknowledge this stuff is is an incredibly useful role that employers can use to lend weight to the whole thing um, especially given all that stuff we were talking about earlier with regards to sort of 1950s factory manager attitudes towards the workplace which are still quite prevalent um, i think employers need to actively push back about against that there is a there is a kind of privilege that employers have in terms of the power dynamic and i think as a responsible employer you should be using that privilege to try and encourage people to have a healthier attitude towards work Thank you, Rich. So where can people find you? It is super duper easy. Uh, I am available on LinkedIn. You can search for Rich Kershaw. Um, I'm also available at richkershaw.com. I'm also available on Twitter and all of the other social networks as well. But um, my website, richkershaw.com, is absolutely the best place to go. Well, thank you for your time, Rich, and thank you for um, reminding me about the Dice Man, which is um, I, I may have to go back and, uh, and revisit now. It's uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Tim. It's been uh, it's been a fun conversation. I'm really looking forward to hearing your uh, future guests as well. Do yourself a favour, the podcast about learning from experience and the things we do to make our lives easier. Brought to you by Make Work Work Better. My name's Tim Sisney from Make Work Work Better. Our theme tune is by The Titanics. Talk to you again soon.